Welcome to part two of our episode covering Jeffrey Dahmer. If you haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one. It is episode 44, The Milwaukee Cannibal. Now let's begin with part two. Enjoy. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Let's so let's get started into the tree. Yeah, I'm really interested. I'm really interested in this. For well, we're going to start with the paternal family line, and I found a few mm-hmm. interesting things or patterns I found interesting. Yes. Um, and we'll we'll go through. So the first one theme is a little bit of athleticism and scientifically minded. So there is a science component to a certain degree. So I failed to mention this earlier, but but Lionel worked as a chemist. I know why, why he was there in Milwaukee. He, he was going to school. He was at Marquette. That's when around the same time he met Joyce. He ended up getting a PhD in chemistry that he completed from at Iowa State University in 1966. After he got that, that's what led the family to move to Ohio. But he wasn't the only person in his family who made a living with a science career. So did his father, Herbert Walter Dahmer. In fact, not only did they have science in common, but also athletics. We'll get to both in a bit. Um, Hmm. Herbert was born in 1903 in Eastman, Wisconsin, a tiny town in southwest Wisconsin, not far from the Mississippi River. Herbert had an older sister, Edna Estella. Only one of them would have any memories of their father, John, as he died when Herbert was just two and Edna six. Their mother, Rose, would do her best to raise them on her own. Sadly, tragedy would strike again 15 years later when Mother Rose died at age 52 in 1920. Despite all the setbacks, Herbert threw himself into school where he succeeded at both academics and athletics. Not only was he involved with school plays at Prairie du Chien High School, but he also played basketball. During a game in March 1921, his senior year, Herbert faced an injury. This is from the Lacrosse Tribune on the 13th of March, 1921. Prairie basketer well enough for journey to home. Herbert Dahmer, the Prairie du Chien basketball player who was injured in the game with Toma last Friday night, was able to return to his home in Prairie du Chien Saturday morning, where he was placed under the care of his family physician. Dahmer suffered a slight fracture of the skull when he fell during the course of the game. Did they know oh any personality gosh. changes after that? <laughs> I don't think so. I get the impression that Herbert was well-liked. He was... Oh, this is Herbert. Yeah, this is not... This is Lionel's father. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. After high school came to an end, Herbert headed to college, Platteville State Normal School. Wow. His entering class was the first required to possess a high school diploma to be admitted to the college. Huh. See, I didn't even realize you didn't have to have a high school diploma to go to college back in the day until I read that. That's so interesting. Like his time in high school, Herbert got involved in student activities, playing baseball and even running cross country. In fact, he was part of the first ever cross country team at his school. Hmm. In November 1926, his cross country team would win the Wisconsin State Championship. Hmm. On July 22nd, 1927, just three weeks after the college changed its name to Platteville State Teacher College, Herbert graduated with his degree to teach high school. Not only was the school the first teacher prep institution in Wisconsin, established in 1866, Herbert's class was the first to graduate with degrees. Oh. oh. I think before they just probably graduated with like a teacher certificate or something, just saying mm-hmm. that they had yeah. done the training. Today, right. Platteville yeah. State Teacher College is known as the University of Wisconsin at Platteville. Now, it's likely Lionel's love of chemistry came from his father, who would go on to teach junior high and high school science for the entirety of his career. Hmm. One of his earliest jobs would be in Greenland, Michigan, where he lived and worked in April 1930, at least according to the 1930 census. He was sharing um, a residence with a couple other teachers. 
By the fall of that year, though, he had moved back to Wisconsin, getting employment at Horace Mann Junior High School. (laughs) And he made his home in West Alice. Now, he had lived there before in 1929 for just a brief time period. Interesting. It was likely in 1928 or 1929 when he was there before that he would meet Catherine Jemima Hughes, a public school teacher from Iowa County, Wisconsin. I'm not sure how they met, but I know he was a frequent guest at her mother's home in 1929 and 1930 because the local paper wrote about it. Don't you love it? Yeah. So, like, Herbert Dahmer was visiting Catherine Hughes at her home. <laughs> it's okay. the, the, I love those. Old newspapers mm-hmm. are so weird. Yes, they <laughs> yeah, really are. so weird. They report on the weirdest stuff. Well, especially the small local ones. They're, they're, they're yeah. delight. They're a delight. The Bangor Times has some real gems. I had to go look at those for my <laughs> weird Wednesdays hilarious. on TikTok. I will send you. I'll send you some. Okay. Because we do something in my human geography class on this. Oh, awesome. The couple would marry in 1933. Herbert would teach science in West Dallas at a couple different high schools until his retirement at the end of the 1969-1970 school year. So he taught for over 40 years. Wow. A year. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. A year after retiring, mm-hmm. he died at age 67. That was young. Yeah. Like literally wow. a year after the school year ended, he died. wonder why. Like natural causes? Wow. Did it say? Um, it didn't say. My guess is natural or... I'm just wondering about like, was it heart attack? Was it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. I I didn't, there's no, I didn't see a death certificate. Mm -hmm. So much like his father, Lionel was athletic as a young man. I found several notices of his involvement with the sport of tennis. Now this was no mild hobby. He played competitively, possibly with the hopes of greatness that never manifested. In 1958, at the age of 21, Lionel would compete at the first Western Wisconsin Open in La Crosse, Wisconsin a meet that was sanctioned by the USLTA, United States Lawn Tennis Association, which is now known Mm -hmm. as the USTA, the governing body for tennis in the United States. Oh, and he lost in the second round in 1958. This has been humiliating for him. I found other references to his playing. On September 11th, 1965, he competed in a tournament in Ames, Iowa, while working on his PhD. And again, he lost in the second round. Once they moved to Akron, Lionel kept competing and was an active member of the Akron District Tennis League. I think he only recently, in recent years, stopped because he just couldn't do it anymore. But tennis was like his life. So if he wasn't at work, he was playing tennis, I think. He wasn't at home. Right. So moving on from that, we're going to talk about the immigrants of um, the Dahmer line. Different books in Wikipedia make reference to Jeffrey's family history by saying that his father's family came to the U.S. from Germany and Wales in the 19th century, and that his mother's family was of Norwegian and Irish ancestry. So, let's see how true those statements are. We'll start with the Dahmer side, specifically the family of Herbert Dahmer, um, Jeff's grandfather. The furthest back I got before stopping was to Johannes Greb and his wife Anna Margarita Hoffman both likely born around 1800. Their daughter, Sibylia Greb, was born in 1836 in Freienstein in Hessen, Germany. She would marry Christian Dahmer sometime before 1866, and they had at least three children, one of which was John Dahmer, Jeff's great-grandfather. Now, John was born in Freienstein in 1866, and according to the 1900 census, he immigrated to the United States in 1892, and he came to the United States alone. None of his family members followed him. They remained in Germany. John would marry Rose Martin Seidel in 1898 in Crawford County, Wisconsin. Rose was born in 1868 in Saxony, Germany. Now, she immigrated with her parents and a brother, Martin, to the United States in 1882 on the SS Strasburg out of Bremen. Then they arrived in New York City, 10 years before Ellis Island. When Rose made the journey with her family, she was 14 years old. Her father, Carl, also known as Charles, was a carpet weaver. Her mother was Wilhelmina Carolina Shada, who went by the name Minnie. Oh, and when they crossed the Atlantic, Minnie was pregnant with their third child, Walter, who was born just three months later in Milwaukee, 
That must have been awful. Yeah, I would think it would have been comfortable. They would have one last child in 1885, Lydia Rose. So that confirms that Dahmer's family was German. But what about the Welsh? Well, Jeff's grandmother, Catherine Hughes, and this is the grandmother he's lived at, mm-hmm. who he committed those three murders in her home. Well, she had a mixed ancestry. It turns out she was at least half Welsh. Hmm. It was Catherine's paternal grandfather, Jeff's second great-grandfather, who came to the United States from Wales. Catherine was the daughter of Robert Roland Hughes and Eunice Adele Spears, both from Iowa. Born in 1904, she was their sixth child. Robert's father, Roland Hughes, immigrated from Carnarvon, Wales, on the Bark Hindu, and arrived in New York City at the end of May in 1842. He was 22 years old. He would move out to Iowa and settle in what seems like a large Welsh immigrant community at the time, many working as coal miners. And that would be one of his first jobs in the United States. Hmm. He didn't stick with it, though. I don't blame him. Which is probably why he lived a little longer. Um, His parentage is a slight mystery to me. Okay. I tried to sort it out in the short time I had, but it proved confusing. So in June, 1859, Roland married Jane Williams, a recent immigrant from Wales. Like she just came over that year. Oh, wow. And Jane would be Jeff's second grandmother. Lucky for me, the Iowa marriage records from that time include the name of the bride and groom's parents. Nice. That is I love when I find that. It just makes me so happy. Jane's parents were listed as Owen and Elizabeth Williams. Okay. Roland's parents were listed as Hugh and Catherine Peter. Hmm. Hmm. So I didn't know if this meant that his mother remarried and that was who raised him. Like Hugh was a stepfather. Which would have been very unusual at the time. Well, it happened. But you and they would sometimes take on that name, but he was going by Hughes, not by Peter. Yeah. Or if there was another situation I'm missing. So I tried to right, search right. in the Welsh records and I thought I might have found him, but it's not enough for me to confirm. Mm. But mm. no matter what. That's interesting. It confirms that, yes, there's some Welsh ancestry right there. <laughs> However, Jeff's great grandmother, Eunice Spears Hughes, was not Welsh. At least not as far as I know. I was able to trace the Spears or the Spear because it changed at one point family back to 1804 in Massachusetts. New Englander. At the time, William Spear, Jeff's third great grandfather, was born. He married Eunice Day on March 4th, 1830 in Ontario County, New York. Hmm. Now, Jeff's second great grandfather, William's son, Dighton Spears, was married to Jemima Rickey. And that's Dighton, D-I-G-H-T-O-N. Interesting. Yeah. With that family, I was able to go back to the late 18th century with the lines in this family to New York and Pennsylvania. But I was unable to determine when and where this part of the family emigrated. Mm -hmm. However, I did find a little bit more, which we'll get to later on this family. So the claim that all the Lionel's family emigrated from Wales and Germany in the 19th century is only partially true. But how about the mother's side? So back to Wikipedia, which again said that she she was of Norwegian and Irish ancestry. And what's funny is the book, you know, the one I talked about earlier, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, even specified that she was, her names came from Flint and Kuntberg, K-U-N-D-B-E-R-G. Jeff's maternal grandmother was Lillian Bernice Rundberg. It was an R-U-N-D-B-E-R-G, not K. And so I guess they kind of got there, but not all the way. Yeah. Um, she was born in Chippewa, Wisconsin on February 3rd, 1915. Like Herbert Dahmer, she was a first generation American. Both of her parents, Ole Erickson Rundberg and Inga Clevin, were born in the same community of Etnadal, Norway, and Opland. Etnadal is a small logging and animal husbandry community around 112 miles north of Oslo. North of Yeah, so it's not near the sea. Like the North Pole? Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> it's cold. And that's why it's logging and animal husbandry, I would think. Because yeah. it's likely their families knew each other. And I found their story to be interesting. You see, Ole was 19 years older than Inga. He was born in 1870, the third of eight children to Eric Olsen Rundberg and Anna Maria Neal's daughter. 
In early May 1893, following his younger brother Nels, who made the trip two years prior, Ole arrived at Ellis Island on the SS Nordland out of Glasgow, Scotland. It had been a long journey as he had left in April out of Oslo on the SS Montebello to Glasgow in order to change ships. Mm-hmm. He would first settle. Can you imagine? In- we changed flights now, and back then it was ships. Yeah. Talk about layover. <laughs> that would be a lot longer layover, longer travel. He would first settle in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. By 1900, he lived with another Norwegian immigrant and worked as a farm laborer. While he worked to establish a life in Wisconsin, Ole made re- many return trips home. I counted at least three. That's where, a lot. Yeah, where he would stay for at least a month, probably longer, before returning to Wisconsin. That's interesting. Yeah, I believe that he was probably working to help provide for his family who remained in Norway. Right. On one trip back to the U.S., his brother Gilbert and sister Siri joined him. However, they didn't stay. They returned to Norway for good by 1910. Hmm. I imagine it was on one of these many trips home that Ole met his bride. When Ole headed to the United States for the first time, Inga was just four years old, born in 1889. I know, I see that face going, ooh, gross. It gets a little better, I guess. Um, Inga was 19 when Ole made his last trip to Norway in May 1908 on the Lusitania. He would remain in Etnadal for a year. So I hmm. wonder if part of that purpose was to find a wife. Likely. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When he made the return. Because at that time, he was 40, wasn't he? He was what? Was well, He would have been close to 40. Um. No? Oh, wait. When was he born? 1870. He was 30. Well, he was 38. Yeah, he okay. was close to 40. You're right. Right? Mm-hmm. So for him to be unmarried and close to 40 at that time, he waited a long yeah, time. Yeah, now a lot of Norwegians wait. A lot of Norwegians. Do they? And, and yeah, That's the Nordic thing. people will wait until their mid-20s to 30s before they get married. Because the feeling, we discovered this on other episodes, is they want to establish okay. themselves before they take take on marriage. Which I don't mm. think is wrong. No. <laughs> I, I, don't I don't think that's a bad idea at all. It, it just seems very modern, right? Yeah. it's And that's always been that way. So when you go in the records, you'll see, oh, they were mar- 30 when they got married. Like, what? <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So when he made the return trip to the United States in May 1909, with him on the SS Mauritania was Inga. Seven months later, they would marry at the Central Lutheran Church in Chippewa Falls. They had five children, the third of which was Jeff's grandmother, Lillian. Just a side note, both Inga and Ole lived long lives. Ole oh. died in 1957 at the age of 86. Wow. Inga died at the Rutledge Home for the Aged in, at Eau Claire in 1980. She was 90. Nice. Wow. Yeah. And this means it's well likely done, that Inga. Jeff knew his great-grandmother. That's interesting. Or could have known wow. her. Wow. Could have. Mm-hmm. As to the rest of the family, were they Irish? Uh, maybe. I haven't found all the maternal origins, but I can confirm that the first flint in the United States came from England, not Ireland. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the other lines have been in the United States for 200 years or much longer, most likely from England. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They've been really rooted in the United States for a long time. While it's possible there's no proof other than family lore and one Irish surname Dowd way back in the tree. So if there's Irish, it's very little. So, (laughs) and like I said, the Flint family had a great deal of English ancestry, which again, we will address a little bit later. One decided pattern I did notice in the Dahmer side of the family is a history of early deaths. Something that Lionel is defying right now, being 86. Great grandfather, John Dahmer, died at the age of 38 in Eastman, Wisconsin. Wow. Yeah. As mentioned earlier, it means son Herbert Dahmer grew up with no memories of his dad. Then John's mm-hmm. wife, Rose Seidel Dahmer, who never remarried, died at age 52 in 1920, mm-hmm. and no causes of death are known. Rose Seidel's father, Carl Seidel, died at age 55 in 1898, just two months before Rose got married. Wow. On the Hughes side, Jeff's great-grandfather, Robert Rowland, died at age 55, dying young like his father did before him. Robert Rowland also was an ancestor who grew up with no memories of a father, as his father died before his first birthday. 
Based on probate notices in the Wisconsin newspapers, Roland Hughes died on January 27th, 1873. He was likely 53. Wow. So when I found that, I believed that Roland's wife, Jane, must have remarried soon after, probably to help the Ray's family because later notices listed her as Jane Jones, not Hughes, and said that she was a widow and requested that a Jonathan Jones be given the right to dispose of the estate. So now I had a clue to work with. And it helped. I found a marriage record from October 1873 with Jane marrying a James Jones, another immigrant from Wales. Oh. The person officiating the wedding was Jonathan Jones, a man I believe wow. to have been James's brother. However, the marriage went last as Jane was going by Jane Hughes by the 1880 census, just seven years later, with no sign of James. I suspect he died, hmm. but trying to find a James Jones. <laughs> is um, putting it mildly difficult. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes, y'all, I think I must be weird because I always get excited when I stumble on a scandal, even in my own family, <laughs> when I'm yeah, doing research. Tell me more. I recently saw a post from somebody on Twitter who was shocked at the things she found. And she's like, why didn't you all warn me? This is awful. I'm not. She wasn't sure she liked this whole thing with genealogy and the secrets that come out. When you do the research uh, secrets, mm -hmm. she didn't know about her grandparents or even her parents. So it's no surprise. The joy I got when I find scandals, family secrets and murder in a tree. I research for this podcast. I <laughs> eat that shit up. And boy, I did. We'll start with the first one being Owen Baldy Hughes. I love the name Baldy. Yeah, that was his nickname. The great grand uncle of Jeffrey Dahmer son of Roland and Jane Hughes. It was his convict record from Montana, how I first discovered that he had some stuff in his past. Ooh. He was convicted on November 16, 1909 of burglary and sentenced to one year in prison in Sweetgrass County, Montana. According to his record, he suffered from kidney issues and was single. He was released. <laughs> yeah. That is quite the affliction. Yes, I know. <laughs> He was, I mean, I should say he, he was single and he suffered from kidney issues, but whatever. That, that was funny. You're reading it that way. He was released less than a year later on October 17th, 1910. So what did he steal? Great question. Not when I have an answer to. <laughs> However, there was another, the I do know that the crime occurred at Reed's Point, a town in Montana, but it wasn't his first mm. crime, but it may have been his last. I found another arrest hmm. discussed in the Missoulian, a newspaper, on July 12th, 1902. Sheriff Savage, Thursday afternoon, arrested Owen Hughes at Miles City, who was running the red lemonade stand for the Buffalo and Wild West aggregation. The instructions to make the arrest came from Sheriff T.J. Fowler of Bozeman. Hughes is accused of stealing $27 in cash and a watch and a ring at Bozeman. If Hughes acknowledged the theft and restored the property, he was to be released, otherwise held until Fowler arrived. He claims he is not guilty. Later on, he was released, it being evident from closer investigation that he was not the man wanted. <laughs> oh, however, man. however, maybe they shouldn't have released him because I found the following story in the Butte Minor on just a couple days later on July 16th, 1902. Mm-hmm. Out on bail. Oh my gosh. This is out of, a story out of Bozeman. Owen Hughes was brought back from Glendive by Sheriff Fowler and is now out on bail, which was fixed at $200. Hughes, more commonly known as Baldy Hughes, left town with the buff. <laughs> I love the way they write yeah. Hughes. Left town with the Buffalo and Wild West show. And when he went, he took with him, it is alleged, a watch and ring belonging to James Latta. The man was arrested at Billings by the sheriff of that county, and it is said gave up the jewelry and then went on with the show. Sheriff Fowler followed him as far as Glendive, where he arrested him and brought him back to town. Wow. Yeah. Now, the only other newspaper article I saw referencing Owen, because he didn't, he never did marry, was visiting his brother, Robert Rowland, um, the grandfather of Jeff, on December 14th, 1922, 18 days before Robert died. Oh, wow. Yeah. Owen would die just two years later in 1925. He was 60. Mm. Now we come to the case of James Eveland, Jeff's half great granduncle, 
son of Jemima Rickey, and her third husband. Some quick background, though. Jemima was the wife of Dighton Spears, mentioned him earlier. So that was Jeff's second great-grandfather. He died young. Born in 1851, he died around 1876. So, and Jemima and Dighton married in 1869, sharing three children together. After his death, Jemima remarried Canadian Anson Kelly in May 1879. They would have five children together. I believe Anson died, although I found no death record. By the 1900 census, I found Jemima married to Caldwell Dunaway. They had just been married in January. I also saw that Jemima had two sons after the death of Anson, James and Johnny Eveland. I was never able to find a marriage record to learn her third husband's first name. (laughs) Now, both James and Johnny would make the news. In August 1918, Johnny Eveland died from wounds suffered during World War I while in battle in France. He had only been there for four months. James would also serve, but he survived. But that isn't why James made the news. He made it just seven years earlier in the Iowa County, and that's out of Wisconsin, Democrat, on March 30th, 1911. It was on the circuit court calendar under criminal cases, and it said, State of Wisconsin versus James Eveland, bastardy. I was never able to find what that referenced. Oh, but what what is that? I believe that's um, he wasn't he was the father of a baby and he wasn't um, taking responsibility. Yeah, taking the responsibility. Or he was, or he was just a bastard, and they actually had legislation, which I wish they still had. Oh, that, there, right? there'd be too many people. <laughs> Wait, can you imagine? Okay, that? I am like one hundred percent looking to see what who who like is charged in bastardy laws. Mm-hmm. This was nineteen eleven, so I don't know if that helps you. So apparently, they were. Um, it, it was that the um fa- the purported father had to raise the child to the age of ten. Oh. That was raised to 18 in 1951. Interesting. Um, and that the mother's sworn testimony was prima facie evidence rather than conclusive evidence. And the putative father could have a trial by jury. Oh, and apparently he was going for. Curiouser and curiouser. But yeah, basically he didn't want to pay for his kid. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think he did because I never saw a kid living with him or anything else unless. But I didn't. I couldn't find any re- resolution on the case either. So, okay, now let's move over to the maternal line and the family history of Joyce Annette Flint. Now, this line, oh boy. Okay, one of the key things I found in this line were broken families with divorce oh. or death leading to remarriages or just leading to just a lot of kids being raised by one, a single parent, mm. which is never easy. And surely not back then. And there's one situation that was beyond the pale. So I'll sum these up, some of these, the, the first batch of them pretty quickly so we can get to the meat of the most important life-shaping ones. We'll start with Jeff's third great-grandparents, Cyrus Flint and his wife, Sally Eimer. That name was so popular at that time. It was. It really was. I, I'm surprised I don't have an ancestor by the name of Cyrus. That's how popular it was. I do. That's so cool. Okay. The couple would marry. Ar- Not that one, though. <laughs> okay. The couple would marry around 1833. Cyrus was 33, Sally 19. They had only two children. Then in 1852, Cyrus died at their home in Allegheny, New York. Sally had two sons to provide for. By 1833, she remarried to Simeon Brown. The couple would have three more sons, two of which were twins. Then we have Jeff's second great-grandfather. Two of which were twins, as in two sets, or just one set? Of the three sons, there was one set of twins. Three sons. Yeah. Three sons. Three sons. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. I probably could have phrased it better, but yeah. Now, Jeff's second great-grandfather, Edmund Everett White, struggled to keep a wife. Born in 1845, Ohio, Edmund first married Elizabeth Elliott in 1867. They had one daughter, Rosa, at the end of 1868. The couple would divorce sometime between 1870 and 1873. In 1873, 
Edmund married Mary Bicknell soon after he relocated to Wisconsin. <laughs> he had to leave. Yeah. His first wife remained in Ohio, I believe, mm -hmm. with their kids. Right. He never saw them again, as far as I can tell. They had wow. two daughters, Hattie and Jeff's great-grandmother, Lottie. But this was another marriage destined to fail. They were divorced before 1900. Wow. Mary would never remarry. She raised her girls and farmed at their home near Eau Claire. I mean, she was listed in the census as a farmer. She was yeah, doing it all on her own. She's too busy to get married again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's a strong woman. But Edmund was still in the marriage game and he left Wisconsin. By 1900, he was living in Ashland, Oregon. In May 1915, at the ripe old age of 69, he married wife number three, Ellen Hall. And I got to be honest, because there's 15 years between, I wouldn't be surprised to learn he got married to somebody else on his way there. Yeah. But it I don't have any evidence of it. Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't list. It just wasn't right. available information. Wow. And not, not unlikely. Yeah. Sounds like. Ellen died. Sounds like my oldest uncle. Yeah. Ellen died two years later. He married one last time in 1919 to Ella Clemens, a woman 19 years his junior. So their marriage lasted two years until his death in 1921. Did she kill him? I don't think so. Did he drink the wrong kind of potato soup? Maybe. <laughs> but she died soon after him. So who knows? And she was oh, young to she die. She must have the soup too. Yeah. Yeah. There was another third great grandparent married more than once, although it wasn't exactly by choice. David Bicknell and Arenzo Amanda Foss married around 1848 and had at least three children, including Mary Bicknell, who was done wrong by Edmund White, the one we just spoke about. Oh, yeah. David died okay. in 1863 in Oneida, New York, at the age of 41. I don't know his cause of death. I tried to see if he was in the Civil War, found no evidence of it. So he died young. It's just interesting. They're, so far, they're all very much Northeasterners, like mm -hmm. Midwest to the Northeast. Oh, lots like of this Northeasterners. Whole upper part, where we all are, essentially, almost. Yeah. Right. Or where you were. Oh, they're all where so. we are in terms of where we live. Mm -hmm. That's kind of funny. Either the Midwest or the, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, with three daughters to raise, Arenzo married Abel Taylor a few months after David's death. I assume they married in New York, then moved west to Wisconsin, where they would have their son, Charles Taylor. So I don't think she was interested in remarriage, but after he died, she had to, to raise her family. Right. Right, but right. all of that is mild compared to the situation I found with Jeff's second great grandfather, Abner Flint. Okay. To get to all of that, I'll give you some basic context. Joyce Flint Dahmer's father was Floyd Leroy Flint Sr., who also went by the nickname Rocky, like Joyce did. Thanks. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Rocky was born in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, to his parents, James Ernest Flint and Lottie Mae White. For most of his life, Ernest, the name he went by, worked in factories, starting from the time he was old enough to work, either making shoes or working as a machinist, but he was always at a factory. By the time he married Lottie, who was nine years his junior in 1908, he was 35. He had already faced many challenges, especially the challenge of identity. Who was he? You would think this would hold a simple answer. It doesn't. Interesting. There was a time in his life that Ernest went by the name Ernest Humphrey, not Ernest Flint. But why? Ernest's mother was Mary Sophronia Gregory. Mary was born around 1851 in Allegheny, New York, to Alvin Gregory and Hannah Porter. It was her mother's second marriage, and as such, she had three older half-siblings, twins Ezra and Ellen, and sister Sarah. Then, when Mary was a teenager, her mother died. Her father would remarry soon after. Hmm. It was likely around the same time that Mary met Abner Flint. And I have to think it's kind of related to her getting married when she did with a new stepmother in the home. Sure. Abner must have dazzled her or been a means of escape from a stressful situation at home. In 1866, Mary and Abner married. He was 24. She was 15. Ew. Not a fan. Yeah, I'm never a fan. <laughs> yeah. Abner and Mary would have two sons in quick succession, James Albert and Floyd Lewis. 
After the birth of Floyd, they left Allegheny and moved to South Valley, New York, a town over 200 miles to the east, where they lived during the 1870 census. Okay, really quick. So basically, he marries this child, Mm -hmm. forces babies on her right away, and then moves her 200 miles away from home. Yes. I do not like this man. And, And you have good instincts on this. Then they picked up from there and headed west now, out of New York, to Wisconsin. Mm. They lived there by 1873 when Ernest was born at Stevens Point. Sometime after Ernest's birth, the parents would separate and divorce. I believe it was Abner who left, but I have no proof. Okay. What I do know is that by 1885, Abner was living in Dakota Territory. Hmm. In 1886, he remarried to Mary Jane English Curran. She would die the next year, and he would remarry one last time to Josephine Park, or Josie, in 1890 at Faribault, Minnesota. They would have a daughter, and by 1920, they moved to Florida, where they lived until they died. (laughs) They lived until they died? (laughs) They lived until their deaths. They lived out the rest of their lives. They that lived out the rest of their because lives. Because I totally, when they lived out my the rest totally of their lives, like, I like that better. Got that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I was tired at this point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not once did I find an indication of a relationship with any of his sons, any of the children he had with Mary Gregory. Hmm. As for Mary, I believe she struggled to support all her, her three sons. So she took a dramatic step. She gave up her children. Oh. The two older boys were fostered by other families. In the 1880 census, I found son Floyd, now nine years old, living with an older couple, Charles and Mary Brimmer. I was unable to find older brother James or Ernest. They were not listed by the last name Flint. And we'll get back to that in a bit. Mary would remarry in 1879 to a man by the name of Thaddeus Watts or Tad. Mary was 28 and Tad 23. So she kind of switched her fortunes a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we're going to, we'll we'll talk about Tad a little bit later, but Tad and Mary had two. You're killing me. I know. I I got to keep hanging on. So many loose ends. Tad and Mary had two children of their own, William and Cora, with William being born almost exactly nine months to the day that they got married. (laughs) <laughs> then in February 1900, after 21 years of marriage, Mary died of cancer. Oh, that's sad. It was her death that led me to find Ernest in 1880 and learn more about his story. Hmm? From the Stevens Point Journal on February 23rd, 1900. A correction. And I couldn't find the original article because ugh, sometimes because it's hard. even <laughs> on a database, they're not going to pick up every time a name occurs. Right. In an account of the death of Mrs. Tad Watts, printed in Monday's Daily Journal, it was stated that one of her sons by her marriage with Mr. Flint was later known by the name of Irving Altenberg. Altenberg. The same article also appears on the first page of the weekly, the information that the statement was erroneous not having been received until after the first and last pages huh. of the weekly had been printed. Hmm. The statement was incorrect and was made upon misinformation. The fact is that the son alluded to was adopted when a boy by a gentleman by the name of Humphrey. And after he grew up, was not generally known by the name of Flint, but by that of Ernest Humphrey. Interesting. The young man farm, formerly worked in the railroad shops here, but is now railroading in the West. Hmm. And what I found next was tragic. So now hmm. I know he was going by Ernest Humphrey and he had been adopted by the Humphrey family. So I found them in the 1880 census. The family that took him in and adopted him, whether formally or not, I don't know if it was a formal adoption, were the Humphreys, made up of Carell Humphrey Jr. and Martha, or she went by Maddie, Marin. Coral and Maddie married around 1872. I suspect they took him in before he was five. Mm-hmm. This new family of three would make their home in Knowlton, Wisconsin, just 15 miles north of where Ernest was born. Then, on May 13, 1880, Coral, his adoptive father, died. Mary was now a single mother with an adopted son. By the time of the 1880 census, just a month or two after Coral's death, Mary and Ernest lived with her father-in-law, Coral Sr. 
Two years later, she would remarry. I suspect that the previous arrangement with Ernest no longer worked with this new husband. I do not know how long he remained with his adoptive mother, but I'm positive there was no mother-child relationship because when I found her obituary, there was no mention of Ernest. Hmm. And there was no mention of Ernest and his stepfather's, his adoptive stepfather's obituary either. That's Hmm. interesting. That's sad. And they never had children of their own. Now with this information, I'm looking fresh and I discovered that Ernest was married before he married to somebody else before he married Lottie White. In November 1897, he married Augusta Bradford. The marriage announcement in the newspaper mentioned that Ernest Humphrey worked as a brakeman for the railroad and Augusta was a school teacher. Hmm. They would have no children and divorce before 1908 when he did marry Lottie White. Hmm. And he went by Ernest Humphrey in his first marriage. When he got married to Lottie, he started going by James Ernest Flint. Hmm. Now, I do want to move to a different theme from the side of the family, but connects back with Mary Gregory, Jeff's second great-grandmother, and her second husband, Tad Watts. So I'm fulfilling getting back to something, Mira. I know. I, I'm excited. I found a few interesting articles about Mr. Watts, the stepfather I doubt Ernest ever knew. The first appeared in 1898, which indicated that Tad was a firefighter. Actually, I should go back. I... I think he might have known his stepfather because there was a mention of him when his mom died. So she must have stayed in touch mm-hmm. with him. So I, right. yeah. So he would have at least had, yeah. Yeah. He had some sort of relationship. He knew who she was. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the first appeared in 1898, which indicated that Tad was a firefighter. The article discussed Tad and one other being suspended for 15 days each but didn't explain why. Whatever it was, it must not have been too bad because he was appointed Teamster for Engine Company Number 1 just three months later. After Mary's death in 1900, life took a turn for Tad. I found the following article in the Gazette, um, a paper out of Stevens Point, on March 2, 1910. Tad Watts was taken to the Oshkosh Asylum Friday morning, having been declared insane. Oh, wow. But it is expected he will fully recover his mental balance in a short time. Uh, Watts, who is about 52 years old, has what? always made Stephen Points his home. What? Yeah. He was released, but not so. So he went long. temporarily insane? I guess maybe. Who knows? The only yeah. thing I can suspect. So the only. Okay. The only. I have a suspicion, and that is that. I know at that time, the only thing that was, well, one of the things that was definitely grounds for temporary insanity is like finding out your wife's having an affair or something like, mm-hmm. something like love tryst mm-hmm. issue, like something happening that would, you know what I mean? Right. Something relationship oriented potentially, but who knows? Yeah. Well, who two knows? years later, this next article appeared in the Stevens Point Journal mm-hmm. on September 13th, 1912. And the headline is, Think He Is Insane. Sorry. The Fond du Lac they reporter. They were wrong. Of, he did not recover. No. The Fond du Lac <laughs> reporter of Thursday contained particulars of the sad condition of a former resident of the city. Those who knew hmm. Tad Watts in his younger days will sincerely regret his present condition. He was a gentlemanly and kindly disposed young man, but most unfortunately, he took the road that leads to ruin. <laughs> the same sad road that many other kindly disposed young men are taking today. I love the writing. (laughs) The Fond du Lac paper said, although Tad Watts, formerly an employee of a local livery, was recently examined by a lunacy commission and declared sane, his actions during the past few days have been such that the authorities at the county jail where he is confined have requested that he be examined once more. Watts has been in custody since September 6, when he was arrested while intoxicated and in condition verging on delirium tremens. His case was so peculiar, however, that a commission to pass upon his sanity was appointed. On the following day, he was examined, and the doctors came to the conclusion that his condition was simply the result of drink, and that a few days in which to allow him to sober up would cause him to resume his normal mental state. Since that time, Watts has been kept in his cell and has not been allowed any alcoholic drinks. His abstinence, however, seems to have had effect contrary to what was expected. For five days and five nights, he did not sleep at all and only took a small amount of milk as food. And during all that time, he 
has been the victim of queer hallucinations. During the night, he pounds on the cell floor with his stool, keeping time to imaginary music and not allowing the other prisoners to sleep. Can I ask a question? Do we know how old he was? I'll get you that in just a second. During the time he has been in custody, he has wrecked two cells, tearing out the water connections in one and ripping the bed from the wall in another. Thursday morning at nine o'clock, he crawled under his bed and went to sleep for the first time in five days. 57. He was 57. Okay. Because that could be um, excessive alcohol use. And I've actually lived this. I've seen this in person Mm -hmm. um, with somebody close. Uh, That can cause what they're referring to. And forcing him to abstain would make it worse. It it sounds like some of the symptoms of going through withdrawal, but at the nth degree because, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because dementia, he's already damaged his brain. Yeah. Yeah. He died in 1916 in Fond du Lac. I believe that um, my my thoughts are that he turned to drink after his wife died. Mm-hmm. And things yeah, went downhill. Could be. Sure. Now, sure. That, that was the story of Ernest's stepfather. Let's discuss Ernest himself. I'm guessing all that trauma of his childhood caught up with him. I struggled to find him in the 1920 census. I found Lottie and their children living in Chippewa Falls, but no Ernest. Where could he be? After some digging, I found him living in Westport, Wisconsin, living at the Wisconsin State Hospital for the Insane as an inmate. Oh, my. I had no idea why he was committed or for how long. Mm. By 1930, he was no longer in the hospital. And as far as I know, he never went back. Mm. Okay, so we're going to transition to something new. The Civil War. Such a huge part of the show sometimes. And it's going to be that here because there's some interesting stories. Were they held prisoner in Alton, Illinois? No, sadly not. Okay. Sadly not. Seems to be a lot of connections. Yeah. As far (laughs) as I can tell, though, none of Jeff's paternal grandparents fought in the Civil War. Okay. I believe he had an uncle or cousin who did, but I didn't go deep into it. Mm -hmm. However, he had a couple of great grandparents on his mother's side who did serve on the side of the Union during the Civil War, which makes sense Mm -hmm. given they all lived up in the Northeast. Right. We'll start with that scoundrel, Abner Flint. But with him, I think the Flint family origins merit some more background. So let's go back to the first Flint I can confirm. Thomas Flint. Now, there are books and published reports that he was originally from Wales and then removed himself to England before heading to Massachusetts. However, the idea that he was from Wales is often stated in these books as one of tradition. So basically family lore that he was from Wales. There's no actual evidence. Right. So he might have been Welsh. We can't confirm. Only the people with the DNA might be able to. Oh, yeah. Anyhow, born in 1603, Thomas Flint was one of the first settlers of Salem Village. Yes, that Salem. Oh, boy. Which is now known as South Danvers, Massachusetts. It's uncertain when he arrived at the new colony, but there's evidence he was there as early as 1650. Oh, boy. Thomas was Jeff's eighth great-grandfather. And I'll circle back to him later. This is very exciting. It's very much lots of circling back. Yes. I know. I, I got to keep you guys hanging on. <laughs> Eventually, the Flints would leave Massachusetts to settle in Toland, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Then after the Revolutionary War was over, they moved again to New York State, where they would remain, except for the few who moved west to Wisconsin. Hmm. While I found no evidence of any direct Flint ancestors fighting during that war, Jeff had at least one ancestor who did. And by that war, I mean the Revolutionary War. Right. Nathaniel Warren, his fifth great-grandfather, the father of Mm -hmm. Cynthia Warren, who married Ephraim Flint. Ephraim and Cynthia had three sons, Nathaniel, Abner, and Cyrus. Lots of boys. Yes, lots of boys. And we talked, we mentioned Cyrus Flint earlier. Jeff's third great-grandfather was the father of Abner Flint. Born in 1842 in Amity, New York, Abner was the prime age for serving during the Civil War, which he did. At the age of 19, Abner enlisted in Company K of the 85th New York Infantry Regiment in Phillipsville, New York, for a term of three years. The regiment would leave New York and head for Washington, D.C. soon after his enlistment with the duty to defend the capital city. But they didn't remain there. Soon after their arrival in March 1862, they faced their first battle at Manassas, Virginia. It was a five-day battle. Yeah, that was a big one. That was a big one, yeah. From there, they kept marching and fighting at the Siege of Yorktown. Wow. And went on to the reconnaissance of Seven Pines in Virginia. 
It was a gathering oh. of forces by General George B. McClellan to make an approach to Richmond. He was in the thick of it. Yeah, he was. He, they, his, his, his regiment was right in the middle of everything. Wow. Then on May 31st, the first day of the Battle of Seven Pines, Abner was declared missing in action. <laughs> this was a battle of no winners. Mm-hmm. But then again, are there ever winners at war? But there were a lot of losses, over 5,000 for the Union and 7,000 for the Confederate Army. Mm. He wasn't missing for long and rejoined his unit. In February 1864, after fighting battle after battle, Abner re-enlisted while his regiment was in Plymouth, North Carolina. And they became what was called like a veteran regiment. Just two months later, his regiment would face one of their most difficult challenges, the Battle of Plymouth, which began on April 17th. It would last four days and end on the 20th. And this is 1864 again. This battle was not just a land battle, but also a sea battle with a Confederate ironclad, the CSS Albemarle, sinking the USS Southfield and causing significant damage to the USS Miami, both more traditional steamships. They weren't iron, ironclads. In the end, this was a brutal loss for the Union. The garrison surrendered, and now Abner was a prisoner of war. He would spend close to a year in a Confederate prison of war camp in North Carolina not being released until March 1865. Wow. He rejoined his unit, a unit that had been pieced back together after the men were being released, and fought more battles in North Carolina. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, he wasn't done. On April 26, 1865, he was present for the surrender by Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston at Bennett Place in Durham, North Carolina, to General William Tecumseh Sherman. General Johnston was the last major Confederate general to surrender. This action, combined with Robert E. Lee's surrender on April 9th, effectively ended the Civil War. Abner would remain with his regiment for a bit longer until he was finally discharged on July 20th, 1865, close to his home in Elmira, New York. The war was over. Was it though? But I can't help but wonder how much the war influenced his later decisions and his actions with Mary Gregory and their sons and that constant need to move around. The other problematic grandfather... Edmund White was also a veteran of the Civil War. He served in Company C of the 128th Ohio Infantry Regiment, Hoffman's Battalion. And I believe when he enlisted, he did so in 1862 at the age of 16. Um, He was just a baby. However, I don't know how long he stayed in the war as I couldn't find all his muster rolls. So a lot of this wasn't as clear as the other one. Hoffman's Mm -hmm. Battalion had one specific job during the Civil War. Guard duty on Johnson's Island, a Union prisoner of war camp. Let me tell you a bit about Johnson's Island. The 300-acre island is located in Sandusky Bay at Lake Erie. I, I keep thinking about how cold the winters must have been there with that Lake Effect snow and everything. Yeah. Um, thousands of prisoners would be sent there, with more than 10,000 confined during its history. The prison was designed to hold only 1,000 prisoners on the nearly 17-acre spot of land selected for the prison. During the early part of the war, keeping the numbers at capacity or lower was easy since prisoner exchanges were common. But that stopped in October 1863, likely around the time when the Union learned how the Confederate forces were treating their prisoners of war. At one point toward the end of the war, the prison population reached close to 3,300 prisoners. During its 40 months of use as a prison, a little over 200 inmates died, mainly due to illness and disease. They would be buried at the north part of the island. Run rampant. Like when it happened, it probably went wildfire. Yeah, it went fast. Because it would be, especially once you had over 3,000 there, it would be very contagious. Mm-hmm. Now, this island got its name from the owner, Leonard Johnson, hence Johnson's Island, with the U.S. government leasing the land during the war. At the end of the Civil War, the land was returned to Johnson, including all the bodies buried on the island. Johnson returned and started farming again. In 1878, the U.S. Congress approached Johnson and offered him money to buy the Confederate cemetery from him. Like, we'd like to own the cemetery where all these dead bodies are. We'll give you money for it. Well, he refused the offer. Twelve years later, the state of Georgia raised funds and and arranged to build a fence around the cemetery and erected headstones for each grave. In 1904, the U.S. Daughters of the Confederacy arranged purchase of the cemetery. Hmm. 
Now, for all my problems with the U.S. Daughters of the Confederacy, I think this was a good thing that they did. Yeah. They would donate the cemetery to the United States in 1931. The cemetery, which once was one acre, is now, today, just 100 feet wide and 480 feet long. Many memorials have been constructed there. (laughs) While only 206 grave markers stand in the cemetery, ground-penetrating radar was able to identify 267 bodies buried. Wow. No one knows if they were all from the Civil War or not. Wow. By the way, you can visit the cemetery today if you want. It's maintained by our U.S. National Park Service, where I got all that information about it. Oh, fantastic. Score one for bureaucracy. We're coming to some fun parts that I'm I'm excited about. So I said I would circle back to Thomas Flint. I don't think they that Zelda or Mira believed me, but here we come. And I was going to talk about his connections with Massachusetts. So I discovered that Jeffrey Dahmer's family ties in with other families we've discussed in the past. Oh, really? Yes. Let me tell you how. Pa-pow! That's awesome. So Thomas Flint had several children, one of which was Sergeant George Flint, born in January 1652. Around, and that was um, Jeffrey Dahmer's ancestor as well. Around 1683, George married Elizabeth Putnam daughter of Nathaniel Putnam and Elizabeth Hutchinson. Nathaniel was the son of John Putnam Sr. and the brother of Lieutenant Thomas Putnam. Now, we talked about Thomas Putnam before. He and his wife, Anne Holyoke, were the parents of Deliverance Putnam and Captain John Putnam. I thought that sounded familiar. Do any of these names sound familiar to you, Zelda? Because we discussed this. They do, but I am, of course, blanking on who they are connected to. I get that. Well, you've been in all the podcasts. Now, Mira thinks she might know, but it's been a while since we discussed them, so I don't blame you for it. Deliverance was the seventh great-grandmother of Barbara Follett. Oh, wow. Yes. So this That's means crazy. that Jeffrey Dahmer and Barbara Follett were 10th cousins. Oh, my gosh. Six degrees, 10 degrees of separation? And like Barbara, yeah, and like Barbara, he had relatives tied in with the Salem witch trials. Knew Although it. more indirectly. When you said, yeah, the when Putnam? you said that originally, uh-huh. yeah. Well, no, but prior, when you mentioned him prior and you talked about Salem, yes, mm-hmm. that's Salem. Now oh, yeah. you're connecting him with them. And yep. it's like, yeah. speaking it's of, crazy. of Salem, as a little aside, did you all watch Finding Your Roots this week on PBS? No, yes. Ma'am. Claire Danes has an ancestor who was hung at this as a result of the Salem witch trials. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was kind of wild. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Back to our regularly scheduled content. It also turns out that Jeffrey Dahmer may be a Mayflower descendant. Oh, my gosh. I ran out of time to confirm this bit of information. However, I'll share what I did find. That'd be, yeah. His fourth great grandfather, Ephraim Flint, married Cynthia Warren. Cynthia was born in Connecticut in 1763 to Nathaniel Warren and Jemima Fuller. This Nathaniel Warren may be a direct descendant of Mayflower passenger Richard Warren. Oh, wow. And I've seen the steps suggested. I just haven't confirmed that the steps follow. I think at some point we need to, like, do stats on how many descendants of Mayflower people are serial killers. Yes. Because they've shown up a lot on this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And victims, too. Mm-hmm. And um, by the way, Richard Warren was married to Elizabeth Walker. Now, Jemima Fuller was possibly a direct descendant of another Mayflower passenger, Samuel Fuller, who was only 12 when he made the journey on the ship. Wow. If this is true, then Jeffrey Dahmer's distant cousins include Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Orson Welles, Kristen Wiig, huh. Billy Eilish, Taylor Swift, and James Spader, to name a few. That's wow. quite interesting. What did I say about sure six degrees guessed- of separation? <laughs> yep, that's not all. There are two notable names that are direct descendants of Thomas Flint. Hmm. Clara Barton was really? Thomas Flint's fourth great granddaughter, and former wrestler and current actor John Cena was <laughs> Thomas Flint's ninth great grandson, which means no John Cena way. is Jeff's eighth cousin once removed. Oh, my God. And that's a relationship I can confirm. You would think I'd be done, but I'm not. <laughs> it There's turns more? out but yes, wait. I have a tangential connection to Jeffrey Dahmer. What? Before his 
third great-grandmother, Hannah Porter, married Alvin Gregory. Mm-hmm. She was married to Alonzo Alexander Shattuck, my Shattucks. And they had and had three children with him. What? Mary, so Mary Gregory's half-siblings. While I'm not a blood relative of Dahmer. Thank goodness for small favors. The children of mm-hmm. Alonzo and Hannah and their descendants are related to both of us. Basically, we share some cousins. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. Okay. The theme was six degrees of separation tonight. I swear. Yes, that's that's true. I have a couple of interesting cousin stories. But since this is so long already, I'll probably just I'm just going to share one here. I'll share the rest in the future, most likely on TikTok or Patreon. Um, But for now, here's one I decided to share. It's short and sweet. However, it's also tragic. Of course. This story involves an incident with Jeff's third cousin once removed on his father's side, Bruce Dwayne Douglas. I found it in the Wisconsin State Journal on July 2nd, 1952. Bruce Douglas, eight, son of Mr. and Mrs. Howard Douglas Dumbarton, died Tuesday night at a Darlington hospital of injuries received when he fell from a silo on his father's farm Tuesday. Boy climbed to the top of a 40-foot silo to catch pigeons, other youngsters said. I know, it's so sad. He apparently heart. lost his balance and fell to the concrete floor of the silo, landing on his head. Oh, mm-hmm. oh man. That's just would have been so terrible bad. to find. Yeah, it is. There's Aww. some other interesting family connections and stuff, but I'll share that in social media, maybe. Or we can always visit this again. But I do want to go back to James Ernest Humphrey Flint and let you know that he was a bit of a poet. I know this because in 1920, he shared several of his poems in his local newspaper, the Chippewa Herald Telegram. I'll share one now. This one's called Morning Song. The Oriole is singing with his leafy bower. You hear his sunrise greeting in this the morning hour. Eastern sky is glowing. Tis the coming of a day. The hours of rest are over. Tis the beginning of a day. You see the sunbeams glancing, gliding from tree to flower, as the new day is dawning and this the sunrise hour. Tis thus all nature greets you at the rising of the sun with cheerful, loving thoughts for each and every one. Mm-hmm. The dewdrops sparkle brightly in many a flowery dell. The apple blossoms' fragrance casts a fairy spell. The cherry blossoms white mingle with azure hue. And the plum tree's purple haze covered with sparkling dew. And from his leafy bower, the bluebird sings his lay. The robin warbles merrily to greet the coming day. Hmm. And that was the family tree of Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. Interesting. Wow. That was some amazing work, Denise. Wow. For real. For real. Girl. (laughs) So question before we start with, before, Uh before we wrap up, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall or on your computer. When you found that familial connection. Oh, yeah. I, well, as soon as I saw Shattuck, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, because. Let it not be a blood relation. If, if, if somebody blood has relation. the last name Shattuck, I'm probably related to them. Right. So that's I how just Michigan knew. Is. And, but I went and I verified and I'm like, yep, yep, that's my family. Yeah, that's how Michigan is. Like, and, and the thing is, I'm not a blood Michigan. I'm an adopted. I was adopted mm-hmm. into the family, but I guess they're all related. Yeah. So like similar things. So when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, it's very, yep, that's well. And a part of it is because the Shattucks came to the U.S. in 1630. Okay, so they've been here for so long. Mm. They've just they're everywhere, (laughs) and a lot of us don't have that last name anymore. I mean, mine was disappeared with Nellie um, Shattuck, who married Charles Haberstroh, the German. Okay, but yeah, so that was our next episode i'm kind of torn between two but i'm leaning towards eileen warnos i'm leaning towards eileen warnos and i'm thinking of that because oh my gosh her treat is insane yeah oh my it is so good i mean i i'm excited she the amount of generational trauma and the amount of patterns are just like insane there's a lot of patterns i'll give you a hint she she was a teenage mom Briefly, she gave up her child for adoption. She was not the only teenage mom in her family. There were, mm. uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And she wasn't the only one adopted by a grandparent. Mm-hmm. That was that a note. lot of fun. And <laughs> I think it's time for dinner soon. But um, oh, yes, we, we hope you come back soon. 
And Anytime. It was it's great always, having you, Mira. It's always fun. It's always interesting. Thanks for hanging out with us. It was really yeah. good to see you. And um, you both look fantastic. You both radiate fantasticness. So it was really well, nice. That's to, just the light. As do you. <laughs> but it was. It was really nice to. Uh, it was really nice to connect with you. And I always enjoy yeah. it. So yeah. Thank you for thinking of me. Definitely. Well, and thanks everybody else for taking a listen. And we'll be back um, soon with our next set of episodes. So yay. Because that was part one and part two. So, <laughs> so And <laughs> come back. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.